we're more than a year removed from losing Ezra. And Zion still talks about him. We all do. I mean, he was a part of our family. And at Mother's Day, Zion drew a picture of me and Michael, and then her and Ezra was still in it. And, you know, we haven't forgotten him. We'll never forget him. And he was a family member. Lauren Green McAfee, thank you so much for sitting down for exclusives. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lila. It's so fun to be here with you. So I met you, we were talking about it earlier in the green room. I think it was eight years ago, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I think so. At in least DC. that, yeah. And you've been doing pro-life work for... Yeah, over a decade. Over a decade. Yeah, it was a little before, right before we met, that I had gotten more active, at least, engaged on the pro-life work. I'd been more engaged locally. Um, and then a decade ago, got more engaged kind of more broadly than just where I live. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for people that don't know you yet, you're very highly accomplished. You're going to be Dr. Lauren Green McAfee <laughs> yeah, soon. You are the founder of Stand for Life. Mm -hmm. You're the director of ministry for Hobby Lobby. Yeah. You're a wife. You're a mom. We're going to get into your amazing personal story mm -hmm. and some of your work. But first of all, give us a little bit about your upbringing and your background. Yeah. Well, I was raised in Oklahoma City and... I've lived there most of my life. I briefly lived in New York City for a little bit as a um, an adult right after college, but have yeah was kind of born and raised there in a family where I'm one of six kids, so I have a lot of siblings. And right now, all of my siblings live in and around where I am and my parents, which is really fun. Like it's really fun to still be close with all my family and we love hanging out. Um, my siblings are some of my best friends. So um, I have four sisters and one brother. And so lots of girls. My brother is the oldest and then, yeah, me and then four younger sisters. Um, but yeah, I grew up in the, you know, my family owns Hobby Lobby. And so I, people think of the Green family and um, that's the context that I'm in. But growing up, it was very much just, we were just a normal family. And I knew that my dad worked with my grandpa and my uncle and my aunt. And, you know, it was like a whole family thing. But um, it was just a really sweet thing to get to grow up watching my dad go to work with other family members. And I always thought that would be really cool to do someday. And so I, I grew up wanting to work in the family business, but it was never something that was a pressure. I mean, my grandpa always said, my grandpa David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby, always said, like, we just want our kids and grandkids to be doing whatever it is that the Lord calls them to. And if that's in Hobby Lobby, that's great. If it's not, then that's great too. And we support you. So most of my siblings are working outside of the company and um, me and, and one other sibling were working inside the kind of family uh, business. And it's a lot of fun to be around family. So uh, yeah, that's kind of the context that I grew up in. I remember a few years ago, I got to go to Oklahoma City and got a tour yeah. with you of Hobby Lobby, <laughs> which was very cool. The, the factory, I guess yeah, you could call Yeah, it the and, warehouse. And all this huge. stuff. But I was very impressed learning about the history and the founding and just about the approach of the company. Obviously, giving away yeah. a significant portion yep. of profits to charities right. is one thing. And then also the way that the family culture, because mm -hmm. um, there was a sense of it's not given it's earned yeah and i remember you yeah. sharing how you had to go through the interview process for your position right yeah you were treated the same as other staff even yes. though you are the granddaughter <laughs> and that was very important to the, the the culture of the business yeah yeah i mean my family definitely has always kind of raised and instilled in us this sense of you know you have to have a good work ethic and you have to have character and just because you're a part of a family that owns this business doesn't mean you get any special treatment. You still have to be qualified and hardworking. And that really came from a, a deeper sense of wanting to steward the company. So my, my grandparents and, and my, all of my family members that have been a part of growing the, fam the family business have said, we are stewarding this company. It's God's company. He's allowed my family to build it to what it is and work hard, but it is my family's job to steward that and to take care of it and to be wise with that. And so that includes having, uh, you know, family members that are in the business have that same kind of sense of, hey, we are here to work hard and just like anyone else would. And we're here to do a job and we want to serve the Lord with our gifts and our talents and, and work 
hard to glorify God in what we do. And so that definitely, yeah, meant, you know, I still had to interview for the job and I could get fired if I wasn't doing the job right. And and that was that's good because then it pushed me to be the best of myself instead of just relying on having things given to me, which wouldn't have, you know, pushed me to be um, nearly as hardworking, I think, as I could have been. And so, um, yeah, I see that as a gift uh, and, and something that I'm grateful for in the heritage and the legacy that my parents have lived out in having a family business. Well, and you're definitely living that legacy. You founded organizations, you've written two books, you're getting your PhD, and I think we're the same age, yeah. so, and you've got two kids, so you know there's a, there's a whole lot that you're doing, which is awesome. When did you first become passionately pro-life and get involved in pro-life activity? Yeah, growing up, I would say, you know, being in a Christian family, there was always something that I knew was a conviction of based on our faith was that we valued life, all of life, including life in the womb. And so my mom was on the board of a pregnancy center in our community. And through college, I got more engaged on that issue. And so whenever I graduated college, I was then on the board of that same pregnancy center that my mom had served at. And being on the board was more of a direct connection to the pro-life work for me and getting to volunteer there was was very meaningful for me in solidifying my convictions about pro-life. Um, before that, I would have said that was what I believed, but it was becoming more real as I was, you know, interacting with the the frontline workers and interacting with real people's stories who were facing unplanned pregnancies. And it was just a few years after that that our family was faced with a challenge from uh, the HHS mandate that came down under Obama's term, the Obamacare, and it was challenging our faith convictions around the life issue. And I, I remember our family called together a family meeting because it had to do with Hobby Lobby. And so my uncle, who was at the time over kind of all the health care and benefits for the company, called together a family meeting. So we all met one night at my uncle's house and um, anyone that had like littles where they were encouraged to get a babysitter and all family members that were over 18 in the Green family were at this meeting. So my grandparents, my parents, aunts and uncles, and then me and my cousins and siblings, we were all together and we were told that there was this Obamacare mandate that was requiring um, that our company, Hobby Lobby, provide and pay for drugs and devices that were considered to be abortifacient. And because of our convictions about life, we believe what the Bible teaches, that all life is valuable and that life has dignity and, and that that includes life in the womb. And so it is not, is not okay to take the life of an innocent child in the womb. And so because of our convictions, we had to face um, this decision of what are we going to do, where the government is saying we are being required to cover this, if we are out of compliance with that, the government will, would fine the company. It was like over a million dollars a day, so not sustainable, a day, not like a year, a million dollars a day. And that was the reality, was we could either comply with this mandate or fight against what the, the government was saying we had to do. And, and as a family, we had to be realistic about what that could mean. I mean, it could mean, theoretically, like worst case, that we don't win, we are fined, and eventually Hobby Lobby goes out of business, or you know that things don't go well, and we we don't are, we're not a part of Hobby Lobby anymore. So our family had to process that decision and together say, okay, what are we going to do? And my grandpa wanted to have the youngest family member. He wanted every family member to say something and to kind of share what they were thinking, and he wanted to start with the youngest and go up in age. Um, and he, he said he wanted to do that because he didn't want the older voices to kind of sway. He really wanted us all to be unified in this, and he wanted to hear from the younger generation, the third generation, to know where we were at. So that was, at the time, my sister, Danielle, was the youngest one in the room, and, and she was like very convictional about where she stood on the life issue. And then on up, every family member, I mean, some of what us What does had, that mean? What did she say? What yeah, I, I don't remember exactly what she said, mm -hmm. but it was just, it was a very black and white thing. She was like, I don't know how we could comply with 
And she was, I think, 18 or 19. Like she was, yeah, just right at the And the entire family business to... and fortune was at stake. Yeah, right. And she said, I, we can't comply with allowing our right. insurance company to sell abortifacient right. drugs. Yeah, yeah. And then every family member up from there as well. And I remember whenever I was, you know, it was my time to share. I just, the only, I mean, the only thing I could say was that it was a life, you know, and how could we be responsible for taking a life? It's a life. And it just, it brought me to tears in that moment, thinking about the weight of that, of what was in the balance, both for life as well as for, you know, the impact that it could have on our family and, you know, having to wrestle through this. And so that night, my whole family um, agreed that we couldn't comply with the government's mandate. And that was what began what became the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court case. Um, it, it takes, you know, being at courts at every level before you get to the Supreme Court. And at the, the lower courts leading up to the Supreme Court, we lost at every court. And so, you know, the trajectory was, okay, we lost, and then we appealed it, and then we went up to the circuit court, and we lost, and then we appealed it, and so then it was to the Supreme Court. And it was at the Supreme Court that we, uh, in, in the summer of 2012, finally did have the victory in a, uh, by one vote. It was a 5-4 decision that went in our favor, that as a privately held company, we could live by our faith convictions and not have to comply with the government's mandate to go against our faith convictions and something. So we were grateful for the victory, but it was a, that was a really unique experience for our family that we never expected to be suing our own government and having to stand for our religious liberties um, in, in this country that is so firmly built on religious liberties and, and throughout the process face Lots of challenges. I mean, there were really scary times whenever we were losing at all the courts leading up to, you know, to the Supreme Court, not knowing how things were going to go. And we never, we never wavered in our conviction, but it was certainly, there were, there were days that it was hard and it was scary. And people in the media were saying things about our family and lots of, uh, misinformation being shared, but we had each other and we had our faith and that was really strengthening through all of it. So when did that case conclude? How old were you? Yeah, so I would have been in my mid-20s whenever that concluded. So it was in um, the summer of 2012. So I was just, I was out of college and I was beginning my career. I was kind of trying to find my way in what, what I was wanting to do post-college and, and was working at Hobby Lobby at the time in the family business. And so, you know, that was, that was where I was theoretically going to be continuing to build my career was at this company that now we're you know, facing this challenge and Lord willing would be able to continue to work there and that the company would go on. But it was, yeah, as a young 20 something in that environment, it was very formative in, in terms of learning where my faith was in trusting God who I knew was good and was in control of all of these things, even though it felt scary at times and, and was hard. It was that having that faith foundation meant everything in that moment. And I really think that was what was helpful for me, laying that kind of firm foundation of tr learning to trust the Lord in hard times that served me kind of in later seasons of life where I would face other challenges um, in my life. So you're in your mid-20s, you just won, and it was in many ways a surprise because it had failed at the lower courts. Mm -hmm. The Supreme at the Supreme Court, the Hobby Lobby victory. So you, you would not be forced to provide abortifacient drugs as a private company, and you're figuring out what is your role next. You know, this was yeah. a huge battle that you were helping lead, quite frankly, mm -hmm. um, for your family. So what 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 did you decide to do yeah. next? Yeah, yeah. So the Supreme Court experience was not only formative just in kind of my faith journey, but also in my career in terms of kind of the next steps that I took after that victory. Throughout the experience, I I had always cared about the life issue, but it was that Supreme Court experience where, because it was a life issue, we were hearing from a lot of pro-life leaders. I think that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons we first got connected, as well as so many other leaders around the movement. And I was just amazed and encouraged by the life movement across the country. I had been engaged locally where I was at, but I was kind of seeing the movement for um, all of the different aspects that it had for the first time, because so many people were reaching out to us and supporting us and praying for us in our stand. And that 
did two things for me. Uh, in my work, it, it led me to want to be more involved on the pro-life work. And it, um, it pushed me to start a, a collaborative effort to try and bring together pro-life leaders around the country um, to, to create space for the life leaders to gather, have relationships, strategize, and work together and, and see how we might um, kind of serve one another and be better together, as well as then also that ended up connecting with churches. And so Stand for Life was born out of that uh, Supreme Court experience for me, and I founded Stand for Life. And then it also put me on that path towards my PhD program. So I, I was finishing a master's in theology at the time and, and had enjoyed kind of my education experiences and through the Supreme Court experience realized that there was a, I was, I was, I was interested to watch how the conversation around our families stand for our faith convictions while we were in a public space of a business. Um, and people not really understanding that. And so that started my journey towards the PhD, which was in public theology. So kind of how do we connect public policy, theology, and the public square, and how do those things work together? So my PhD is in ethics and public policy. And, and specifically, my area of focus has been around women's reproductive health and ethics around women's reproductive health. So uh, yeah, so the Supreme Court experience really set that trajectory for both of those things for me. So founding the nonprofit, Stand for Life, as well as pursuing my PhD work. So it was, um, yeah, it was, you know, the Lord, in his providence mm -hmm. is always using challenges, using things in our lives for his purposes. And certainly looking back on that Supreme Court experience, in my life at least, I can see how the Lord was using that to shape and push me into some of the things mm -hmm. that he was calling me into that at the time I, you know, I didn't know that that's where oh, the path I was going to take. And parallel to your mission, this mission work you're doing, your career developing, you know, the fights that you're fighting for life, you're also working to build a family. Share with yeah. us about what that journey has been like with your yeah. husband, Michael, another amazing human being. Yes, yeah, my husband, Michael, is amazing. We met when we were seven years old and became high school sweethearts and got married when we were in college. And yeah, so we we were married during all of the Supreme Court stuff and, and he was, yeah, he's just, he's, an, he's a pastor, a teaching pastor and also the founder of a nonprofit himself. And through through our marriage, we we were always considering adoption. That had always been kind of a part of my family's story. I had my grandparents adopted. My parents are adoptive parents as well. And I had always considered adoption to be something that I would want to pursue someday. And Michael was on board with that. So whenever we came to you know having those conversations about when when we were going to start the adoption process, it was. It was basically the earliest age that you could pursue an international adoption was 25. So in, in the international adoption landscape at the time, the, the 25 was the youngest you could be. You couldn't pursue adoption if you were younger than that. And only one parent had to be 25. So whenever my husband, who's a few months older than me, was celebrating his 25th birthday. We were at dinner. I took him to dinner for his 25th birthday. And that was the moment that I was like, hey, I think we should start pursuing adoption. And he was he was uh, totally on board with it. So we started the paperwork the next day. And that was kind of the process of when we first started pursuing mm -hmm. international adoption at that, at that time. And the landscape with international adoption is always changing. And especially since COVID, it has changed uh, even even more uh, significantly. But at the time, we were pursuing a program in, uh, in an African country, and we were three years into the adoption process in that country when the country, the government voted to close its entire international adoption program. So... Due to COVID. No. So this, this before. was before COVID. This would have been, yeah, like uh, around 2015 or 16. Mm. So it, it closed due to some politics happening in the country. And so us having been three years into this adoption process and, and being fairly close to kind of being matched with a child and bringing home a child, we were told like, you know, you kind of have to start back at square one. And the international adoption process can always range in terms of how long it takes. I mean, it's it's a, it's a complicated, and you're dealing with other governments. So 
being three years in though and, and realizing we were back at square one, when you know, we were excited about adopting, we wanted to grow our family and, and we we felt like adoption was the the way to grow our family. Um, we we had to pray about, you know, what are we gonna do? So we started looking at the other countries that were open. We felt like international was where the Lord was leading us. And so we tried pursuing another country and it was a couple months into that, that that one as well was closing. And then we were not old enough to be applying to the China program, which we were interested in. And so we had to wait until I was a certain age to be able to apply for that program. So in all, it was uh, nearly seven years that we were in the international adoption process before we brought home our daughter. And in that time, we also um, were, were trying to have children biologically mm-hmm. as well and, and realized that infertility was going to be our experience. Mm-hmm. And many, many people face infertility, and that was our story, and we didn't, didn't expect that. And, and so we were navigating both trying to grow our family through adoption and biologically and wanted to pursue both and neither of them was working. And so seven years into the adoption process though, we finally um, traveled to China and our daughter, our first daughter Zion was born there and we brought her home when she was a year and a half old. And um, that was kind of the, the beginning of us becoming parents. And she was she was home with us for seven weeks whenever she was then diagnosed, uh, surprisingly diagnosed with cancer. So it was, um, it was a very unique entrance into parenthood. So we, we, we had Zion, she was diagnosed with cancer. She went into remission from her cancer January of 2020. And during all of her chemotherapy, we were in kind of quarantine mode and wearing masks if we were going out in 2019 because of her lowered immune system. We didn't want to catch anything while we were out, like at the grocery store, and so I'd wear a mask and then come home, and you know, so we were like, "Oh man, she's finally in remission, January of 2020. Like we get to like get back to normal life. We can like leave the house. We don't have to wear masks." And then of course, the rest of the world joined in the mask wearing and quarantining with COVID. That uh, like a month later, so we were back into then this weird phase of navigating COVID and, uh, and all that came with that. Um, at the same time that we also then started pursuing another adoption, we knew we wanted to continue growing our family. So we began our second adoption after we had had Zion in our home for a year and, and we were matched. So in our second adoption, we pursued a domestic infant open adoption. And that was through a local agency in Oklahoma where we live. And we were uh, matched really quickly and brought home uh, a baby boy from the hospital, a son that we were chosen to be the parents of by his birth mom and had an open relationship with her. And um, yeah, and so then Zion had a brother. And yeah, we were navigating all of this mm-hmm. in the midst of, you know, of course, complications of COVID-19. And um, but it was such a it was such an amazing thing to be able to grow our family through adoption. It's certainly a complicated path and, and everyone's experience is different because it, it can happen so many different ways, but we were so grateful to be parents through the blessing of adoption and and, and, and all the complexities that come with it and, and can't believe that we get to be parents to our sweet children that we've had in our home. So little Zion, your first uh, daughter, your first adopted yes. daughter, you, you brought her here when she was how old? She was a year and a half old. And she was in an orphanage in China, uh-huh. is my understanding? Yes. So did you know about any of her health conditions before bringing her here? No, so they 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 didn't have any suspicions. They didn't, weren't suspecting the cancer at all. There was no file that um, they in the, her medical file that had any idea that she had cancer. We most in international adoptions usually you come home and you're just doing general routine medical checkups to just make sure things are healthy and just make sure we can give her the best care. And so it was in in one of kind of those routine checkups that they they did an X-ray or uh, uh, they they thought that there might be a surgery needed on her spine, mm-hmm. and so they were checking for something on her spine and that incidentally caught the cancer. It was a tumor on her liver, so it was called hepatoblastoma, and 
so the scan that incidentally caught the tumor also showed she did need this minor surgery on her spine. So we had to do the surgery on the cancer first to remove that tumor and then do the chemotherapy. And then later do, once she was all recovered from that, go back and do the, the spine surgery. So, and that, the spine surgery had to happen during all of the COVID stuff. So the regulations in the hospitals was oh my goodness. hard to Tough. navigate. Yeah. What was the transition like for Zion coming here to a new culture, a new language, mm-hmm. parents for the first time? She hadn't yeah. had parents. Yeah. Um, what was the transition like for her? And then also she goes into having a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. And what was the transition like for you and Michael? Yeah. So one of the, the things with adoption that I always want to point out for people that aren't familiar with adoption is that it can it is beautiful and and it was something we were always wanting to pursue but it does come with loss like it loss is always a part of an adoption story for the child that's being adopted for the the first family the birth family of a um, of a child and so whenever we you know, we got to travel to China, which was very cool. We, we really enjoyed the culture and learning about um, traditions and holidays and Chinese food. And we, we've incorporated um, some of the sweet traditions from her heritage culture in our own family. But whenever we brought her home, she was leaving behind everything that she had known. She was leaving behind her country, all the smells, the, the language, everything that she had been in for you know, her entire life up until that point. And, and so there's loss there. She also had lost her first family. And, and so, you know, I've, I've heard people describe it as there's always trauma that comes from adoption. Even in the best of circumstances, there's loss. So whenever we brought her home, I mean, it was a transition. She, she was learning a whole new language. I mean, she, she was a year and a half old, and so she wasn't speaking Chinese, but she understood Chinese. And so now she's in an environment where everyone is speaking a different language and the foods are different and the, you know, the sounds, the smells are all different. And so we, we try and, you know, incorporate things from her heritage country, knowing that that's a part of her and that's a part of her story and that's beautiful. And, um, she is one of the most resilient kids I've ever seen. I mean, she's a cancer survivor and, um, she, she did amazing with the transition and, and Michael and I transitioning into parenting was, yeah, it was, it was amazing to me as an adoptive mom to, it, it, you can't quite describe what it's like to have a child that you know is yours, yet they came to you in a different way than the traditional mm-hmm. way. And whenever the first time I held Zion, it was like, I just, it was like, this is my daughter. And she was a year and a half old and she had been in the care of others for the first year and a half of her life. But now she was in my arms and she was mine. And it was like just an incredible gift and blessing that I get to steward this precious life and get to raise her and I get to be her mom. And like, what a gift, like that's beautiful. And the Lord had us worlds away and like somehow brought us together from China to the US and like now she's my daughter and that's it's amazing and it's crazy and and beautiful and yeah as i mentioned it comes with its own set of challenges and so you know as parents it's our responsibility to make sure we're navigating those well and being the best that we can to care well for our daughter who was losing aspects of anything that she knew but wanting to keep aspects of that the the beautiful aspects of her heritage that we could and so, um, yeah, adoption is, is amazing in the midst of all of its complexities. And she's thriving now. Yeah. She's she, a, a thriving little, beautiful <laughs> five-year-old five girl now. now. Yes. When yeah. you, when you um, adopted her brother, Ezra, mm-hmm. I want to hear yeah. Ezra's story. Yeah. What, how did, what was that like for Zion? She was how yeah. old and what was it like yeah. for her? Yeah, so Zion was two, uh, almost three, whenever mm-hmm. we brought Ezra home and we we had only known about him for a few days in in the infant domestic process you can kind of you can either have a situation where you're able to plan for a while and you know that a child is going to be coming into your home or it can kind of be an instant thing and in Ezra's case it was an instant thing and so we had 
uh, a few days to explain to Zion that she was going to have a brother. And um, yeah, we, we brought him home from the hospital as a newborn. It was an adjustment for her, like, like all children, to figure out, okay, there's this, there's this other baby in the home now. We have to share mom and dad. But she became a really sweet and loving big sister. And she's, she's very much high energy, outgoing, and a, and a leader. And so she kind of became protective of him just as kind of that natural big sister leader. And it was really sweet to see her become a sister now to her brother. And they didn't look alike, but they were siblings. And she loved, loved, you know, loved helping with him however she could, which again, as a three-year-old, there's not a lot they can do that's actually really helpful, but she liked to think she was helpful. After receiving Ezra into your home, Zion has a big, Zion's a big sister now. You guys were thrown the curveball of a lifetime. Can mm. you share what happened? Yeah, so it was an adoption program. So it was a, uh, through an agency that does adoptions, and we were chosen by Ezra's birth mom to be the parents, um, the adoptive parents to Ezra, and we had an open relationship with her. And so we there's there's you know court dates all along the process that have to make things uh, legally an adoption, and and it, it includes relinquishment or termination of parental, the first family's parental rights, and then finalization of an adoption. So we were kind of, things were moving forward in the legal process slower than normal because it was during COVID. And so courts were backed up and a lot of families that were in the family court system and the adoption court system were having to deal with courts being slow, courts being backed up, and that was affecting people's lives. I mean, people who were waiting for decisions were now being told, hey, you have to wait for this life-changing decision because the courts were closed. Well, and there's children caught up in Right, this. and there's children mm -hmm. in the balance, there's families in the balance mm -hmm. waiting for these, these kind of life-altering decisions. So things in our case were moving forward as they normally would, although slower than normal. And we were a couple months in when we realized that um, there was going to be a uh, the the court wasn't going to be moving forward in the normal um, process for finalizing because there was a, um, someone that was wanting to contest the adoption. So that meant that we had to wait for the court to do a full trial and figure out the court make the decision of what was going to be the best um, for Ezra and. So Ezra's in our home this whole time, so we have him in our family, and he he's only known us um, as the family that he's been with. And the court took 12 months before they heard his case. So for 12 months, Ezra was our son, and he you know called me mom. He knew Zion as his sister. He knew my husband as dad. And then we we made it to that trial where the court was to determine kind of fate of where Ezra would end up. And it was unfortunately some unique circumstances made things just a bit more complicated in that it was a judge that had never ruled on an adoption case. And so sometimes if, if there's a judge that has ruled, you can kind of know generally where they're at and what they might do. So it was just a big question mark. And he, the judge also hadn't had experience with adoption law. So in our case, the judge decided to, instead of ruling on the adoption case, dismiss our case outright, which our agency in the over 50 years that they've been doing adoptions, they had never seen happen before. What that meant though, was that they couldn't treat the case as an adoption being uh, dissolved, which would have given a transition time for our son to transition out of our home and into a new home. But because our case was completely dismissed, it meant we had two hours of finding out that we would no longer have Ezra in our home and we had to hand him over. And so in a matter of two hours, I had to explain to Zion, who didn't, didn't know that you know there would be a reason that he'd have to leave, I had to explain to her that she had to say goodbye forever to her brother and that we had to hand him over and never see him again. And so two hours later, that's what we did. We handed him off to the family member that was going to be taking him, who we didn't know. 
and just pray that he would be cared for. And we have not seen him or heard about him since. And again, that's challenging for any parent that's hoping and expecting to adopt, even though we know having connection to first family is a good and beautiful thing. It's always hard whenever you've had a child that you've raised as your own and you're having to say goodbye. And in a matter of two hours, we went from having two children and having a son to losing him and not knowing you know, anything about him or hearing from him again. And when Ezra, Ezra woke up that morning, he says, Mom, he yeah. sees his little sister, his big sister, he says, Dad. And when he was picked up, he had no idea that he would never see you again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that morning, all, none of us, you know, my husband and I, when we got Ezra out of bed that morning, nothing in, in, in precedent of how cases had gone, in how we expected things, even worst case, to go, nothing would have given us the expectation that that morning when we got him out of bed, it would have been our last. Um, again, because the case, the court did a really unusual thing, and we had always been told, even in worst case, for worst case for us, again, I do want to caveat that say, like, worst case for us doesn't necessarily mean worst case for everyone, because obviously the person who was fighting for custody of him, that was their victory. And so I want to understand the complexity there. But had they met him? They had met him a few times. Yes. So so, he, so the person fighting for, and I know you're trying to protect the privacy of everyone yeah. involved, but this is not a family you're in touch with. They, right. they completely haven't reached out to you. Right. And there was no transition of care. Like when you, mm -hmm. you know, Ezra had known you for his whole life, his whole year of life as mom. Yeah. When you handed him off to this other family member, did, was there any passing on of, you know, his preferences, his dislikes, his routines, his favorite toys? Mm -hmm. What was the process like? No, no, because it had to be very brief and formal, and there were lawyers around. It, and we, when we physically handed him off, it was a matter of 30 seconds of being in the room, handing him off, and then we were escorted out. And so there was no, yeah, there was no transition process, which again, in normal adoption or foster care would be an expectation and a standard that child specialists would advocate for because that's what's best for the child is to have a transition period and to be able to as much as possible make that transition smooth because it is, it, again, it's a loss. And in a moment, all at once, Ezra lost everything that he had known and was given into a, you know, a different environment. And so for the sake of children, they all they always in a transition process try to make that as smooth as possible by having more familiarity, having um, a, a couple a week or a couple weeks at least to make that transition process. And so that was it was not only devastating to have to walk through personally, but it was not what was best for Ezra in that he didn't get that transition time for him to process and get used to and familiarity for for his new family that he was walking into yeah do you worry about him oh of course i mean he's he's my son i mean i still think of him as my son um and i think i always will and he's out there and i don't know um yeah i don't know anything about him i don't know where he is and i i, I definitely believe want to believe the best and and i i hope and expect the best that the parents that are caring for him now want to give him. But certainly in a lack of having any knowledge of how he's doing, I worry about him. I don't, you know, how could you not? Um, but I pray for him and pray that, pray that he's doing well. I pray for his, the people that are raising him. I pray for their best. I want them to succeed and thrive because I want them to do well and I want Ezra to do well in, in his new environment. So I do pray that for them. And you stayed in touch with his biological mother. Yeah. She had chosen you and wanted you to parent her son. Yeah. But there was a contest from the other side of the family. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening there? Yeah. So we did stay in touch for a little bit. And and I we had had a very open relationship during um, Ezra's time with us. I'm very open with his mom. And so we were in touch weekly. And so even that I cared about her deeply and loved her. And so that didn't change now that Ezra wasn't in our home. So we, we did stay in touch for a while after Ezra left. And then, and then eventually um, 
I lost touch with her, and so I'm I'm not sure where she is now either. But that was another loss of it. I mean, I very much love and care about her, and and miss the relationship and the connection that I had with her as well. How did it impact Zion? Yeah, your daughter. How did you explain that to Zion? Yeah, one morning she wakes up, her baby brother, everything was normal, and the next day he's gone. So we had been talking to. Um, a therapist as well as other child specialists to process how do you explain that to a three-year-old in a way that you know meets at their level but also is connecting this huge loss and so we thankfully had had some tools that we had been working through and kind of processing through of how to talk about that with Zion in advance, knowing that there was always a possibility that Ezra could leave her home. And and um, a, a friend of mine had created this really sweet picture book that her husband was a graphic designer. She was a licensed therapist that dealt specifically with trauma and, and, and adoption and foster care. And so I was talking with her about some of this and her husband, who was a graphic designer, um, ended up making us this little personalized book that had uh, graphics of me and, and my husband and Zion and Ezra and kind of in picture form showed kind of the process of like we were this family of four and we were happy and and then Ezra was gone and that we were sad and that we were still had each other and it was like the picture of then me and Michael and Zion we're without Ezra and even without Ezra, that we had each other, and that she was loved, and she was safe with us, and that we would be happy together again, even though we miss Ezra. And it was, yeah, it was a really sweet gift that um, our friend has been made for us. Uh, we didn't know he was doing that, but he gave it to us a few weeks before the trial, just, you know, again, like, in case that happened. Um, but it was hard to watch her walk that loss. And it still is. I mean, we're more than a year removed from losing Ezra. And Zion still talks about him. We all do. I mean, he was a part of our family. And at Mother's Day, Zion drew a picture of me and Michael, and then her and Ezra was still in it. And, you know, we haven't forgotten him. We'll never forget him. And he was a family member. And we still think of him as that, because he was. And, yeah, Zion's doing really well. Uh, and we love that she still talks about him just like we do, because he'll always be in, in our hearts and in our family. What gave you the strength and the courage, the perseverance to pursue another adoption after the loss of Ezra? Yeah, yeah. After we lost Ezra, it was, it was something we wrestled with, or at least I did, of stepping back into the adoption process is opening ourselves up to the potential of experiencing this type of pain again. And that was the hardest thing I'd ever walked through was saying goodbye to Ezra. And I think it was out of a sense of knowing that it was what God had called us to. So a sense of obedience that the Lord was leading us in this direction and we wanted to follow that. But also knowing that Adoption, we always knew adoption was complicated and there's loss for every person in the adoption. So in the adoption space, there's what's called the adoption triad. So there's the, the adopted child, the first family or the birth family, and the adoptive parents. And so there's kind of this, this triangle of these parties that are involved in adoption and foster care. Every point has specific challenges and losses and, and, and traumas. 
So for us as the adoptive parents, we knew that that was a part of it as you're, you're walking into unknown circumstances. I mean, we knew that there was always a possibility that we could be parenting a child that would just be our child for a season and then we'd have to say goodbye. Um, but I think the thing that I took away from, from having lost Ezra was an appreciation for the loss that adopted children and first families walk because they, they both experienced the loss in, in a really significant way that not always adoptive parents feel. And not to say that I've walked the same loss there, but having had walked through a loss, it certainly gives me greater empathy and compassion for first families who I don't know the circumstances that led to a family having to make an adoption plan or um, for adoptive children and, and adoptees who are processing the loss of their first family. I, I can't always understand that. Oh, I won't understand it because I haven't been there. But I, I can understand the pain of loss. And so it definitely grew in a way, a deeper passion for the issue because I have greater empathy and compassion for the other points on that adoption triangle. There's so much in the pro-life movement, and I know you're, you're familiar, you work with some of these groups, that uh, says adoption can be a beautiful answer to a crisis pregnancy where parenting can't take place. Mm -hmm. uh, but that the movement encourages parenting when it's at all possible. And part yeah. of the work of the Pregnancy Resource Center movement is to give and equip parents, even very young parents, unexpected parents, with the tools that they need so that they can parent because that is ideal to be raised by your biological parents. But there can be beautiful silver linings if a biological parent can't parent for whatever reason, loss, yeah. death, abandonment, addiction, you know, whatever it might be. You have these beautiful stories like Zion's story because you know the alternative for Zion is she's being raised without a mother and a father in an orphanage, mm -hmm. without all the opportunities and the love that she has now. And so I think that's important is that, yes, there's trauma and loss like you share, mm -hmm. but there's so much beauty and so yeah. many stories like Zion's story that's still being uh, written right now of, yes. the, of the beauty, beautiful attachments yeah. and love that can come from adoption. Yeah, I, I think, yes, absolutely. Adoption is beautiful and it is, uh, it is the way that God can make families out of broken situations and can bring redemption and healing and beauty from pain and loss and tragedy. And, you know, God intended for families to stay together. And we, we, we want that. Of course, we want that. We want families to be able to stay together for children to be with their biological and first families. But in the world that we live in, we know that that's not always a reality. And so I think for, for, for people thinking about the adoption and foster care space, I always advocate for everyone in the adoption triad being seen with the value and dignity that they are as image bearers of God. So Genesis 1, men and women are created in God's image. And that's part of why we care about the pro-life issue is because we do believe that image bearerness gives dignity and value to all of life, all of, all of human life, and that applies in the womb. And that same conviction is what um, should cause me to treat every person I interact with with the same kind of dignity and value. Uh, knowing that we, we do step into a world that, so yeah, so Genesis 1, God creates man and woman in his image, people are created in God's image, and then Genesis 3, we see the fall, and so sin enters the world, we're in a broken world. And, and because of brokenness, we do deal with circumstances where children are not able to stay with their first family because of, like you mentioned, there's all kinds of reasons why that happens. And so where possible, we want to make it work that children can go back to their, their biological parents if it's a safe and healthy environment. Um, but when it's not, we need people to be stepping into adoption or foster care, fostering if it's, if it's um, in a foster situation. Um, and caring for children, giving a safe place for children to have a family, have a, a mom and a dad, and to get to be raised in a safe environment that, that they deserve to have in a loving environment. And, and so, yeah, it's a, I've mentioned it's 
always going to be complex in that it's adoption only happens because brokenness has happened. And so stepping into an adoption as an adoptive parent, I think it's my responsibility to be informed and knowledgeable about that and to seek to have, educate myself on the ways that I can best parent my children who have come from situations of loss and and know that you know we might face unique circumstances as adoptive families than if we're stepping into parenting mm-hmm. as biological parents and that just like any parent like we want to be educated on how we can best parent our children that are in our home and so just like any parent who has um, a child with different um, physical special needs you would be educating yourself on how to best care for your child adoptive par- adoptive parents should be taking on that responsibility to educate ourselves so how can we best care for our children who are coming from these certain places of loss. And um, and yeah, it is, it's, again, it's beautiful though. I mean, I get to be a mom because of adoption and I am so grateful for that. And I love being a mom. It's just the greatest blessing in the world. And I love my children and, and it's such a gift and I feel blessed to get to be an adoptive mom and care for my children. You welcomed um, recently Zara into your yes. home. Tell us her story. Yeah. So after we did lose Ezra, we we did feel called to step back into adoption. And so we continued pursuing a domestic infant open adoption. And a year, over a year after the loss, we were called again by the adoption agency and told that we were chosen to be parents. And that was just uh, this this past year. So we brought Zara into our home, and 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 uh, she has now we've finalized the adoption, and so she is officially a, a McAfee. So we have two daughters now, and yeah, she's a lot of fun. We love her, and Zion is yeah again just an incredible big sister, very sweet and caring, and and loves trying to help <laughs> help with Zara as much as she can. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. There's beautiful, beautiful girls. A lot of people listening, I think, you know, if they're already in pro-life space, they understand, you know, the beauty of adoption, some of the challenges. Um, you know, the foster care system is designed for re- reunification. Mm-hmm. So it's families that are struggling to care for the child. And so there may be a time where other parents will be the foster parents yeah. until reunification can happen. Um, that said, about half, I think, of the foster care kids in the system are looking for forever homes. Mm-hmm. So we encourage very much um, families to get involved in foster care and adoption because yeah. there are children looking for their forever homes today in the United States. Um, and there's many children globally looking yeah. for forever homes. Like you've obviously been involved with both sides of, of that coin. Um, what would be your advice to people listening who yeah. maybe they have a little you know, sense of maybe their family is called to, yeah. to this very beautiful, yeah. but often very pain-filled yeah. road yeah. of finding, um, of take welcoming children mm-hmm. into their home that are looking for families that need parents. Yeah. I, I would encourage families to do homework and look into it and consider it. And I mean, I can say, yes, it's brought some of my most painful circumstances in my life, but it's also brought the most beautiful circumstances. And I think anything that's worth uh, doing in life is going to come with challenges as well as um, blessings. And specifically, I think the Lord calls all of us to care for the vulnerable and those in need. And that doesn't mean that every family is called to adopt or foster but it does mean everyone can do something. And so for families that are considering, maybe that does mean for our family, pursuing adoption or for pursuing being a foster parent, um, that, that they continue to be prayerful about what that could look like and know that, yes, it's scary. And I remember before we were in the adoption process, it, it seemed really scary to, to take that step. Um, and to get into it, but um, the Lord sustained us at every step of the way, and the Lord will give strength. And if He calls us, He will be with us in it. And 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 so that is the greatest gift that we can have is to know that we're following the Lord and that He's with us in that. And um, my husband and I just wrote a book called Beyond Our Control, and we we talk about that very thing of you know 
when things in our life seem out of control, the blessing that we get is, is this opportunity to develop greater intimacy with God. And the greatest gift that we received from all of these challenges in our life was a greater intimacy with the Lord because we learned to rely on Him in new ways when we were in kind of the depths of our grief and in our pain. And and not every adoptive family is going to walk the same pain points that we have, and not every foster family will walk the same pain points. But when the pain points come, those are opportunities for us to rely on the Lord. And so... Yes, it will come with challenges, it will come with blessings, but in all of it, to focus on the Lord and what He has for us in that, and um, and just the gift of His presence in the midst mm. of it all. After losing Ezra, what was harder for you? The loss of Ezra, your son, mm-hmm. you're his mom, Michael's his dad, um, or the fear of, and the, maybe the anxieties that come with wondering, is he okay? How is he doing? Yeah. The loss of Ezra, I think, was the hardest thing to navigate because it was it was such a unique loss in that I, I've had um, friends, unfortunately, walk the devastating loss of um, a child and through through death or or a miscarriage, and that is is devastating. And I I don't know what that is like, but it was. It was a unique loss in that I lost a child, but he was still out there and had no connection. And and so the loss was, while the loss was hard, in the unknown of where he was at, I had to come to trust the Lord with and come to peace with the fact that God cares more about Ezra than I do. Mm -hmm. And so I have to trust the Lord with my son, who I don't have any connection or control with, but God does. And... And kind of release that to the Lord um, and know that in my lack of knowing or being able to control the circumstances, God is in control and has and has um, has Ezra in his hands and I don't. And so walking um, walking in that is, of course, it's hard. And I still I, I think about him. I wonder about him and pray for him, for Ezra and his family. Um, but yeah, also walking, just in the loss, watching my daughter walk in the loss has been, I think, the hardest part of the loss, though. Because um, I, my husband and I had the choice to step into adoption knowing the risks um, of loss that that meant for us. But Zion just had, you know, she was in it and didn't know um, necessarily what that was going to look like and that she was going to lose a brother. And having to watch her lose her brother was really hard. And still hard. Um, she, you know, still loves him and still talks about him. And um, yeah, we've tried to create a space for her to be able to process too her own grief of losing a brother while creating the space for us to, mm-hmm. to have healthy grief so that we can be equipped to be good parents to help her in that processing too. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's been a journey and is, is ongoing. I mean, anyone who's walked grief knows that it's not a process and it's not something you check off a box. It it's a, comes in waves and it you don't always know when it's going to hit. And um so yeah, you just trust in the Lord and find good resources and good community. And we've, we've um, in our loss, had to do that and are grateful for all the support and community that we have had, for sure, have had great support and community, and that's meant the world to us. Do you think that our court system needs work? I mean, the fact that there was a judge without experience that, solely from Ezra's perspective, that he was just handed off within minutes and never saw his own mother and father again, do you think that there's need for a reform there. Yeah, the the court system is obviously. I can't speak as the whole, for the whole, but I can certainly say in our experience, it was not not an ideal circumstance. At least for the case for Ezra, of knowing that he was getting the best care and the best process for how things went forward. And so I do think that there um, are challenges in the family and adoption courts. Um, those I think are opportunities for 
for courts that they should think more about how we can care well for children and think about children and, and, and vulnerable individuals who need someone to be advocating for them to have the best care. And um, I wish that that had been the case for Ezra, that the, the decision had been one that in the process would have been better for Ezra in terms of thinking about his long-term um, flourishing and, and what would have been best for him. So I think that there is absolutely need and opportunity for our courts to, to have reform and, and hopefully that happens. What's the effect, have you done research on the effect of children on children who are adoptive or on um, separations when children experience separations? Yeah, so um, I, trauma-informed therapists, uh, social workers that are trauma-informed and child wel welfare workers who have been in and around cases for children would, would always say it's best for that child to have a transition time. And, and to keep connection as much as possible to healthy relationships that they've had. So, you know, that goes lots of different ways. So whether that meant um, that Ezra could have kept relationship with us or in a foster situation for children to be able to keep relationship with their first families, even if they do go on to be adopted into another family, um, keeping relationships, having transition periods, things like that, that, that advocates who are trained and informed and specialized in best care for children would, would definitely say some of those things are necessary. And they're not always taken into account in court decisions by judges who haven't gone through trauma training or had some of these specializations to think about the way for, for cases to go in a way that will help care for and bring about healthy flourishing for children, unfortunately. There are some critics of adoption, as I'm sure you've seen. Um, some very uh, outspoken critics who say adoption, period, is bad. Yeah. Period is bad because it involves separation. And on, then on the pro-abortion side, there's people who say it's so bad that you should just abort the child. Yeah. And unfortunately, there is a common, I think, idea um, because of that ideology seeping in where people think it is better to have an abortion than for my child to have a chance at life. What, yeah. what, is your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, on the adoption criticism, I, I certainly, I, I, I have made it a practice to be sure and follow voices of adult adoptees, of birth moms, and of people who have had negative experiences within the adoption process so that I can understand the, the realities and, the, and the, the point of view that they're coming from. Um, and I, I heard it said well by an adult adoptee who came from a really challenging foster care situation and ended up being adopted into a family. She said, she's often critical of adoption and foster care, and she said, I'm not anti-foster care. I'm anti-bad foster care parents. I'm bad I'm anti-bad people who have motives to take advantage of the system and, and listed off kind of some of the challenges that she herself walked as a foster child. And I think I, I in some, some critics of adoption and foster care, I can agree with them on some things in that, yeah, I, I am not pro-adoption in the sense that I don't want families to have to be broken and for children to not be able to stay with their first families. While at the same time recognizing we live in a world that is broken and that is a reality. And so adoption is a way that um, we can try to bring about redemption from brokenness. And for Christians, I think that is a call for us. Uh, it's, it's a part of the gospel, right? I mean, in the gospel, we have Jesus Christ giving himself to bring redemption for those of us that are in our sin and brokenness and couldn't have it otherwise. And, and so because we see Christ um, bringing redemption and hope and healing, we as believers get to be about the same work and, and are called to, to be a light for Christ and bringing about hope and redemption in broken situations as well. And we're never going to do it perfectly because we're not Jesus. Only Jesus was perfect and we are not. But we, we, we see him as the model and want to follow his example and bring hope into our world and 
even in the, the broken ways that we might do that, we can um, point people to the hope that they can have in Christ as well and try and be a light for him and bring healing in our own worlds. And so I think adoption certainly is a beautiful thing that Christians and, and believers are, are to be involved in as a way of bringing hope, redemption, and healing out of broken circumstances. Mm, it's beautiful. What's next for Lauren McAfee and for the yeah. McAfee family? <laughs> well, trying to uh, yeah raise my two girls. Um, Zion and Zara are a lot of fun and they keep me on my toes. But yeah, um, my, my next book, Beyond Our Control, that I mentioned comes out in November. And so I'm excited about that. It, it kind of unpacks some of the my personal experience with the losses and how to think about trusting a God who is in control in those moments that we feel like our life is out of our control. And and hopefully finishing up a dissertation to finish a PhD and continuing to lead Stand for Life and engage the pro-life movement, connecting the church with the pro-life movement so that our churches can be doing some of these things we're talking about, like living out the gospel, caring for women facing unplanned pregnancies, stepping in and caring for the vulnerable, um, providing foster and adoption care and support so so that the church is living out our call to yeah live out live out that beautiful picture of Christ mm, beautiful and then how can people find your work yeah so they can find me uh, my website is laurenamcafee.com and then our um, stand for life is standforlife.com awesome Lauren thank you for your love and your amazing ministries and for being an example to many people of ge sacrificial generosity to mm -hmm. love God's children and Thank welcome you, them to your home. I appreciate that. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me.